Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. Hello and good evening and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. If you are going to be listening to this live, welcome. If you're listening back to it as a podcast, thank you for downloading this show. Uh, Really excited tonight um i've got ben newmark and amjad ali on the show uh discussing the title which is send inclusion and what is education for um and it's going to be quite a wide-ranging discussion actually we're going to cover things like uh curriculum assessment teaching assistance um we're going to cover all sorts this evening um so i hope you are sitting comfortably and you have your dinner, drinks, or whatever else it is on a bank holiday Monday ready. Um, I'm in a particularly good mood before this show starts because Everton have just won 4-1. And um, it's the first time in probably a long time that I thought in any way positively about Everton. So that's that's put me in a bit of a better mood this evening. Um, and anyway, on to more important things, which is the show. Um, ben has joined me. Ben, we'll just check you there if you want to unmute. Hi. Hello. You can, can you hear me? I can. I can hear you loud and clear. Um, how are you this evening? Are you okay? I'm all right. Yeah, nice day. Nice bank holiday. Been at my mum and dad's house with the kids. Um, uh, nice lunch and yeah, all relaxed. So yeah, good day and pleased for you as well. Uh, nice to see Everton doing well. Yeah, well, it's, it's we are a long-suffering fan base, so I feel like a bit of a break was needed. Um, anyway, um, we've got. I mean, this is this is this show has come about because of a blog you wrote, Ben, that, I, that really did interest me. Um, the title being. Uh, I think, who are schools for? Um, And in the blog, you talk extensively about lots of... It's a very long blog, actually. Um, Not that that's a bad thing, um, but you've covered a heck of a lot in there. Um, I just wondered, before we sort of get into that, if anyone wants to find the blog, you can visit Ben's... uh, You can visit it, actually, at... uh, It's bennewmark.wordpress.com. And the blog is the first blog on there, and it's called uh, Who Are Schools For? Um, And it's divided into different sections. And what we're going to do tonight, Ben, if it's okay with you, is go through each section in order and just sort of explore some of the things you've said in a little bit more detail. But before we do that, can I ask you first, what inspired you to write this particular blog? Oh, well, that, that's an interesting question. Um, I guess it's it's a combination of a, a long, long period in my life. I suppose if my oldest daughter is now six, I suppose, I suppose coming for about four, uh, four or five years. Um, when for a long time, um, I, I come from a family who are uh, blessed and privileged and lucky and everyone went to university and school was always quite comfortable for us. And uh, I think I went along with a narrative that everybody sort of starts at an, uh, at an equal starting point And then if you work hard in school, you do well. And there was really no reason for me to ever question that. 
Uh, and then when I got into school, I think you know, we were all kind of aware as teachers that it isn't quite as simple as that. But our society and schools are sustained on this sort of meritocratic myth that if you just put your mind to it and work harder, well, then you can achieve what everyone else does, even when it's not said explicitly. And I think it usually isn't said explicitly. I still think it's almost the, the oxygen we, we breathe, really. So um, uh, for those of you who don't know, I mean, my wonderful older daughter, Bessie, who's just upstairs having a bath now, um, after about a year, she was, well, we found out that she had Williams syndrome, which comes with some learning disabilities. And that put me into a period of, of real reflection and really thinking hard, because for the first time I was confronted with, uh, and actually made to confront the truth that it's not true that everybody starts from the same starting point mm. and that everyone ends up where they deserve to end up. And so then I started thinking, well, if it's true for my daughter, that's obviously true for hundreds, thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of children uh, don't find learning as easy, or, uh, easy as other children do. And that sort of um, had me looking at schools from a completely different lens. And uh, really, a lot of the work I do now is, is to try and, try and work out how we can make schools good places for all children, regardless of how easy or hard they find learning. Um, and how we do that without causing damage to the things in schools that already work well. And plenty of things already do work really well in schools. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's really it. And then I think the, 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 as one of the, the points to that and where I kind of finished with this blog post, which was actually originally um, the keynote speech at Research Ed Berks, uh, Berkshire, sorry, a couple of weeks ago, which was a great event, was, um, was this idea that we have to understand the problem. Uh, we have to face it. Uh, I think a lot of the problem, I think the problem is hard to see in our education system. And um, I think if we're going to begin to make steps to making schools and the education system properly inclusive, we have to properly understand what the whole problem is. And that's why it's so long. Sorry for, sorry for, sorry for anyone who's trying to wade through it. I realised no. I was making quite a, a few contentious claims and felt it very important that I provide as much evidence as I can in order to do that. No, I mean... Sorry, that was a long answer, no, Tom. That, that's perfect. Um, can you tell everyone a little, because you mentioned your current role, can you tell just outline briefly sort of what your current role is? Yeah, um, I work part-time in uh, a school in the in Leicester, which I really like uh, as um, a history teacher. And um, then two days of the week, I am not in schools and I work on, I, I call them special projects, really, but they're all really around this area, or at least most yeah. of them are. Uh, and and um, I've been doing some work with with the system, um, some work with the Confederation of School Trusts and some work with the Ambition Institute on issues of inclusion and, and issues and how we make schools properly inclusive. And I split that work over two days and it means that my I can do the kid pickups and drop offs, um, which means that my wife can work properly and more full time. And it all just feels a bit more balanced and equitable than it did before. So we're very happy and it's good. Brilliant. Let's get let's get into the blog. Uh, at the beginning, you give an analogy around the sort of um, traffic system and a sort of speed limits yeah. and stuff. Do you want to tell everyone a little bit more about that? Because that's how the whole thing opens up. Yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, really, the, the point is, is that yeah, the, the road system we have is a modern miracle. I mean, it's never been safer. It's never been more efficient. Of course, terrible things do happen on our roads. But by and large, people get into their cars and uh, you, bar barring a disaster or a really bad day, you expect to get to the place you want to get to at about the time you want to. And that's been achieved by compromise. Um, it might be in the interest of someone who's really late to, to drive 100 miles per hour on the motorway. Um, it might be in the interests of, of somebody who has got a, a faster car, which is safer at higher speeds to drive at those speeds. But 
you can't have different rules for everybody, can you? I mean, if you had different rules for everybody on the roads, well, then it would be complete chaos. So we have to have a compromise. In the end, we accept that what's best uh, for us as individuals is not best for everyone as a group. And I think so often... um, uh, debates around uh, education schools in general fall down on the idea that uh, people can very easily find examples of ways in which a big system doesn't work well perfectly for them. And sometimes people present that as if that's some sort of gotcha, you know, like, oh, it, did, it didn't work for me. So that means the whole system must be wrong. But what we're neglecting is like the road system is the idea it can't work for every single person perfectly. It's not designed to. And the reason I started with that metaphor or that analogy, I'm not quite sure what you'd call it. I think it's an analogy, isn't it? Um, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll have English teachers phoning in and correcting <laughs> um, But the reason I, I, I finished with, I started with that, is that I think that's what the school system is too. It's a compromise, right? Like if, if we can't give every single person exactly what they want or even exactly what they need as an individual, because if we did that, we wouldn't be able to resource the whole thing and the whole thing wouldn't run. And I think it's being an adult to accept that, that that big systems have to be compromises. Yeah, so you've said in the blog, sort of building on the back of that, um, you've said from a purely educational perspective, arranging children into classes of 30 by their age, locating them in one big building from 8.30 until 3.30 and placing their learning in the hands of one person at a time isn't ideal. Uh, I mean, you, you say that sort of, we have to make compromises and, and that's sort of the way it's set up. But does it have to be settled that way? Are, are there alternatives around the use of technology, for example? Um, are there ways that we could change the, the, the fundamental way that things are set up? Or do, or do you think, you know what, this is sort of tried and tested formula, if you like, over a couple of hundred years. So, you know, we need to sort of work within those those boundaries. I feel a bit trapped with that question. It's like it comes in two parts, Tom. <laughs> I mean, I think, first of all, I don't think we should ever stop looking for ways in which things can be better. I think that, you know, if, if we have ideas or, or radical new technologies and things which could radically transform the way we do things, well, then, great. But I also think we need to be very careful. Um, there's a brilliant, I don't know if people are familiar with uh, the science fiction writer who wrote, uh, um, Douglas Adams, who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That was it. And, and he's got a wonderful quote about sharks. And he says that um, sharks have been around for a very long time, millions of years. In fact, they have. They've been around before almost anything. And he said the reason they've been around for millions of years is there's nothing better in the ocean at being a shark. And the reason I I use that is I sometimes think that's true about schools. It's very easy to look at the superficial features of school, the factory model that we often have. I think that's that's often quite lazy. And to say, oh, that means that the school's something wrong with the school because it hasn't changed. Where actual fact, the school is fulfilling a specific function um, and a function that does lots and lots of different things. And so it speaks to the second part of your question, Tom. I think often when people look at whole scale, big changes, what I would call revolutionary changes, they're often not looking at them in the round. Now, they'll take, for example, I mean, there's lots of examples you could do for this. So I'll yeah. try and do one that I think is, that I, that I find clear, which is um, around uh, why kids have to be at school from 9 till 3.30 p.m. or around that, you know, 8.30 till 3.30 p.m. Well, that's because schools are for childcare, isn't it? 
Although we don't like to say that, mm. we don't like to admit it. You know, we don't like to, and, and actually mm. the fact that we want children, our children to be under adult supervision at those times. Um, that, that, so that's part of it. I, I often say that to, well, I have said that before to teachers having the worst possible day. <laughs> I feel like every mm. single class has gone terribly. Mm. Um, so, well, at least you've, you've allowed the parents to work <laughs> at the very mm-hmm. least. And that's important and they're safe. They're still there. And uh, the reason I use that example is I think that it's very easy to find radical ways in which you think this could work better, this could work better, this could work better. But when you start working through what that would entail and the other changes to society that would need to happen in order for that to work, does it still work together? Does it still hold? And I think that's that's um, something that I've only recently really started to understand um, towards my, I suppose I call myself young middle age now. You know, when you're young, everything seems like you can solve it with just a quick solution. It's only when you start exploring these solutions and have everyone saying to you, but what if, but have you thought of, and what's going to happen with this thing that you realise that things aren't quite as simple. I think it's on my Twitter bio. Oh, it is. I've just put my Twitter up so I could find my blog. Um, I think more and more these days that if the solution to anything looks simple, you probably just don't really understand the problem. So I yeah. think that, you know, we, we should definitely explore new ideas, but we should we shouldn't also be, we should also not be naive about how difficult it is to change something very quickly without making things yeah. even worse. No, I, I get that. I, get, I completely get that. I think um, one of the, one of the sort of trends in recent years, particularly since, since, since COVID started has been a real growth in, parents looking to homeschool their students and many virtual schools have been seemingly successful you know in terms of you know that there are many more students than there ever have been now enrolled into these virtual schools where they are they are learning online and then in combination with that I guess um, parents or carers are uh, sort of facilitating learning that they don't feel either happens in in a mainstream school mm. or happens well enough in a mainstream school. And I, I put out an interesting tweet actually a few weeks ago, which was which was something along the lines of what uh, if you could mess around with the curriculum and you could put in a completely random subject um, into the into the sort of curriculum, what would it be? And a lot of people said things like gardening. A lot of people said things like. Um, uh, you know, uh, business-related stuff, you know, like entrepreneurship or, uh, or or sort of a lot of people, I know we've got food tech, but a lot of people went further than that and sort of had things about um, like, uh, you know, like complete, you know, like a, like a whole food curriculum as part of a core subject. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, like there was a lot, a lot of different examples. My point is, is that sort of thing is, I, I guess, has driven, there is a rise in parents homeschooling. I wondered if you have any thoughts on any of that or, or and whether that, because does does that mean that we, we do need to look at, I mean, obviously in this blog, we're going to come on to it, the changes that you've sort of intimated that could be made, but like, yeah. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. yeah, a couple. I mean, the first thing that immediately springs to mind is that, there's nothing stopping anyone teaching gardening if you want to. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't mean in schools. I mean, you can teach your kids gardening. Uh, you can teach your kids to cook. Um, I, I realise that maybe it's not as easy as all of that. But actually, when you look at the amount of time children are in front of their uh, teachers in school, I did the maths of this once. Um, in an average school year, it's less than 10% of their time, Tom. 
you know, if you take if you say, if you say five hours a day in front of their teachers, and then you take out all the holidays and you take out all the weekends and everything else, it's less mm. than ten percent of the time. So there's plenty of time. I think to stop mm. kids doing this. Thing. Yeah. Um. And and, and I think the the the, the the other issue I, I would I would have with it is that um, if we're going to be moving to a more homeschool sort of model, right? right. What are the reasons? Right. What, what are the reasons for that? Now, if one of the reasons is because our attendance is a real, real worry, and, I, and to be honest, I, I think that's the thing that schools and the system needs to be most worried about of all right now, along with keep getting teachers, is attendance. Um, and if if the if the reason that we want to move to a homeschool model is we can't get kids to go to school, if that's a driver for it. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I think we need to consider, is that the right driver? You know, is, is the fact that we can't, the kids are unhappier in school than they used to be and not wanting to go, is the right answer to say that they don't? I'm not, sh- I'm not sure that it flows neatly that it is. Um, uh, and, and then also, I mean, the final point I'd make by that is that I think I call it like the, I don't really have a name for it, actually, that sounds very pretentious, but like um, any big system change that happens very, very fast in my experience, it's usually the least advantaged children who suffer the most from that change, right? So mm-hmm. if, you, if you said, right, we're now going to say that compulsory, that education at school is not compulsory, you don't have to be, mm-hmm. or educa- actually um, presence in school isn't compulsory, is it? It's presence in education. You know, we do have yeah. But If we said that, you know, you don't have to be in school, it's going to be easier to homeschool, it's going to be easier to flexi school, is a phrase I've used before, I've heard before, which I'm sure you have as well, um, blended learning. And we allowed that. Now, do, is that going to, what effect is that going to have on our already concerning advantage gap? Um, is it going to mean that the most affluent children, the richest children benefit the most because they've got parents who will be able to help them with uh, the things we consider core in the curriculum and then they also get trips to museums and things? Um, and I think that this is what I mean when we talk about, when I talk about looking at things in terms of the whole system. It's easy to see how this might be advantage to individual children. I'd have quite a lot of questions before we just said right let's go for it and let's make it easier for, to flexi school children or blended learn children or, or whatever phrase we wanted to use yeah no, it makes perfect sense i mean i think it's interesting just from the sense of you know and you sort of touch on this later on and you know towards the end of what you've written about um the, the way i guess I, I guess what i'm getting at is you, you've mentioned these idea of compromises which will explore in a bit but i suppose just from the outset my my big overarching question is what would be enough to to sort of like make some significant changes to to what's happening so um for for example uh you know just one example i mean there have been there has been a big increase over the last 20 years of of the diagnosis of send and send visibility and interventions around send uh, one example within that bracket would be autism diagnosis has increased by nearly 800% in the last 20 years. Many people br- would say that the reason for that is because of our awareness of it and the fact there has been more screening and the fact that there has been more opportunities for screening and the fact that the stigma has been broken down. All of these are incredibly positive things. Um, I-, I guess with that 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 even unless there is more money that then means like you've sort of clear i guess i'm just outlining really the point the blog is unless there is more money then you need to restructure the way things are done because otherwise there's no way you can accommodate those those learning needs 
Do you know what I mean? I, I'm speaking here. Like, I'm, I'm just trying to sort of paraphrase the blog, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure that I really get into that in, in into the blog. The idea yeah. of how we make send identification or designation. My, I mean, my, I guess what I'm saying is the increase. There has been this massive increase in in send identification and diagnosis. So, I guess that in itself means we need to look at how to change things. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that then I think that does get to the point of what I'm trying to say. I think too often what we do in education, actually, no, it's not fair for me to call it education here. I think it's what we do in society because schools are an, an expression of societal values, right? They don't come from nowhere. You know, the, the school system of any culture will be a representation of that culture. And I think too often what we do in schools is that we locate the, the problem of inclusion within the child who is um, excluded. You know, we, we kind of imply that there is a bar you need to hit, which is... Um, a sort of bar of of normal, a, a bar of like, let's get this child to this point where they can now be included. And it's a quite a, what what is often called quite a medicalized model with the differences mm. that a child has and the way they experience, experience things as sort of deficits or problems that or, or diseases. We use the word diagnosis, don't we? And I know I'm always very mm. uncomfortable about that being used about my daughter because I don't think mm. it is a diagnosis. She's not sick. Um, but but then I think what happens is that we then but when we do that and children are struggling in school, well then of course we create an incentivized pathways where people will want to or they actually not want to in fact the only way to be able to get the extra support that your child needs and to, to divert resources from a system that is predominantly set up to favour children who find learning easiest is to get this identification. Um, otherwise, you're you have nothing. Um, and so I think that, that that that's a driver for the SEND system increasing. Um, I, I think it. I think, and I think that really we shouldn't really be doing that. I mean, I think. I mean, other cleverer people, much cleverer people than me, have made this point better. But one point that's been made by someone who I, I greatly admire. I would use their name. I always want. To, I'm not sure where they want me to, so I should probably check. Yeah. But is that um, when we talk about children who are often identified or diagnosed with SEND, and remember, there is no standardization around SEND identification, none at all. Yeah, a child in one school who is assessed as having SEND, exactly the same school, may go to another school and it wouldn't be regarded as having SEND. There is no standardization, right? What we really tend to mean is that these are children who are struggling with school and are finding it hard. And um, what the person I admire pointed out is that often these children are really just acting as canaries in the coal mine for a school system that's failing lots and lots of children, or lots and lots of children are at least really struggling with. And what we should be doing is making changes to the, to the way that schools operate as a whole to better um, serve and meet the needs of children who find learning harder rather than the children who find learning easiest. And if we did that, we would probably find that we would we, we would stop regarding these children as, as special or different or unusual, because of course they're not. They're just normal human children. Um, and, and that that would mean we would have less need for this the sort of intervention and separate bolts on systems that is often and sadly a feature of the way we do uh, or we try to do inclusion in Britain or in England, at least. I'm trying to be careful here because the other thing I, I want to be very clear about is that this is definitely not the fault or the responsibility predominantly of the people who work in special educational in special education departments mm -hmm. or STENCOs because they're, they're working within a system that they didn't design and they're doing their best within those systems. But I mean, I think in, in summary, what I'm really saying is that instead of regarding 
the children needing to have an identification to be regarded as, as, as deserving or entitled or needing support. We should be looking at the way the whole the, the, the schools operate as a whole and how we could make them better for the children who find learning tougher rather than easier. Yeah, you said you said um, in the blog that that large numbers of children leave primary school unable to read well enough uh, to fully access the secondary curriculum and then go into a system set, set up on the assumption that they can, which is obviously yeah. secondary school. Um, what? And again, this is something I've I, and this this isn't necessarily a comment about uh, about um, send students uh, by any by any way, shape or form, but. You know, something that I've talked about over the last few years extensively is sort of is is there a is there a is there a sort of place to look at the desire people have to actually learn and engage with the school system maybe now as opposed to in the past? Is there a place to maybe look at um, uh, you know parental responsibility or or sort of accountability or? Uh, the way in which um, students across the board uh, engage with education at school and at home. Um, you know, w- would you say, I mean, I, I, would, would you say that this issue of children not, not reaching the literacy and numeracy levels at the end of primary school is about schools not doing their jobs well enough to be, to be blunt? Well, I definitely wouldn't say that the primary no. driver of schools not not doing their their, their jobs um, uh, properly. I mean, let let's be, let, 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 I think there's two things going on, isn't there? And, and this is one of the this is one of the, the ways in which I I would have to be very careful because it, with with that with you, it, it's an area in which you could make things worse without meaning to, right? Mm. But when we say that there's a certain percentage of children who are leaving uh, primary school who are not reaching the expected standard in, for example, reading. Now, we know that we can make improvements in those areas. In fact, there have been improvements in those areas. Um, That's happened. Uh, More children can learn to read better. And we should definitely be aiming for that for all children. Uh, Again, going back to my daughter, it's very important to me that she learns to read. I don't want someone to to say because she has some learning disabilities, that means that she shouldn't. She should do, do as well as she can. And And that's not to take away the work that primary schools have done to boost that improvement. That's great. However, whether it, those, that group of children, whether it's because they didn't receive as good instruction as they should have done, whether it's because they come from challenging backgrounds at home, uh, whether it's because they have parents who are so busy and stressed and working two different jobs and, and really, really struggling that they're not having time to um, support in the same way as a more privileged family mm-hmm. like mine might be able to, whatever the reason is, they, they, they're not ready. They haven't reached that expected standard. Mm. So when they go into a secondary school, the curriculum will be set up on the expectation that they can read uh, in a way that will be able to help them uh, access that. And if they can't, they can't. I mean, obviously, that they, I, I just don't see these things as intention with each other. We should be trying to improve the, the instruction and how children learn to read. Of course, we should be doing that. But that doesn't mean that we, we then move into secondary and say, oh, well, bad luck for you. Uh, uh, unfortunately, maybe in five or ten years' time, we'll have a position where you would be able to read to access it, or a child like you would be able to read to access it. They can't. That's the situation they're in. So you then also, we need to look oh, at that. Yeah. No, go on. Sorry, I've, I've banged no, on. Sorry, I was okay. Just leading on from that, I was going to say that you, you then, because you, you touched on curriculum there, you mentioned in the blog GCSE history specifications are much too big, yeah, and you also say 
if the curriculum was more accessible to those who find learning tough, perhaps teaching uh, teaching them would feel more rewarding. Um, and you, you know, I sort of my questions on the back of that were: is or is do we just need to make things generally a bit easier? I wouldn't say easier. I definitely wouldn't say easier <laughs> like, for a couple of different reasons. Um, the, the first thing is that um, is, is the first thing is just the, the optics of it. You know, if, if we say to make things easier, well, then, you know, that's not what schools should be about. Schools should be driving up standards. There should be rigor in those. We agree with those things. I think that the second thing I would say is that when we say easier, well, easier to who, right? You know, like the that yeah. I mean, we, we, the, the the children are different. They come to it from different points of view. And thirdly, I mean, when, I think the area I feel most confident in is is the history GCSE specifications. They're so big that even if you find learning really really easy, they still distort the subject into something it isn't. Um, a history is supposed to be about um, the second order concepts, it's supposed to be about disciplinary knowledge, change and continuity, um, uh, cause, consequence, interpretations. But for everyone, if you're moving through um, a piece in the spec uh, once every 20 minutes, uh, well, then, of course, um, what's going to happen is you won't be able to do those things. So at the end of it, you may well have a child who is a child who finds learning really, really easy. Um, knowing lots and lots and lots and lots of dates, facts, people, events. But we've established from a disciplinary point of view that there's more to history than that. That isn't history. So I think this is a really good example of, of where actually reducing the amount of, um, of stuff in a curriculum could actually lead to more rigorous and more authentic learning, certainly for students who find learning harder, but also for students who, um, who find it quite easy as well. Is there, though, an argument, and this will be made by some, that the sort of approach within, and, and I know in the blog, Ben, you, you do say yourself, you say, um, I'm pro-knowledge, I'm pro-curricular, and I'm broadly philosophically traditional. Yeah. There, are, there are those who would say that the, that we, we sort of, okay, I'll, give, I'll, give you, I'll try and give you a practical example, right, in a classroom teacher in a classroom let's say history because that's the subject me and you both teach um and the feedback might be you it's, it's almost like okay the teacher tries to make it accessible okay so teacher a teaching history that they're, they're really trying to make th th make that lesson accessible it doesn't mean dumbing it down it just means trying to make it accessible. And that teacher is criticised by, say, an observer or an external body or whoever for not pitching it high enough. Now, the, I, I, I'm, I actually agree with you in terms of this idea of compromise. But, but you know, it, it is a challenge, isn't it, to, to sort of... You've got many people who say we, we need to make the curriculum and everything we do at this sort of academic level of, you know, and I think it's easy for people to fall into this idea of like, uh, we, you know, in, in English, it's like, right, we want to, we want to teach like, you know, like we're Chaucer and like the students are all Chaucers. Um, but, but, and that's great. And I understand, you know, we want high expectations. We want to, we want to give every student the opportunity, but is there, a, can you marry this idea of, making things really accessible for 
all students actually, but but that majority who who need that and sticking to the to the sort of guns on this idea of everything being very very academic. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm really I'm really proud to be able to use this this sense in the proper in the proper sense of it. I think you I think that you you're begging the question slightly because I don't think you would find any academic historian or any um, or any teacher of history who would argue that what we see with very, very bloated GCSE specifications is academically rigorous history, right? And if we go to your example, when you were talking about the teacher in the classroom and, mm. and making it accessible. Now, I, if I was to teach a proper lesson um, on, uh, well, and I do, on, on, on interpretations and, yeah. and actually really went into the second order concept, I think that most observers, Ofsted being in there, would be very pleased with what I'd done and quite well, making it sound like, if it went well, if it went well. <laughs> it doesn't always, it doesn't always. And quite rightly, because I'd have focused on academically rigorous history, uh, the, 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 perhaps the disciplinary concepts of interpretations. But what I'm saying is that the way the specification works actually makes that more difficult to do because you can't spend the time working on these interpretations and doing the proper history because if you do spend too much time on that, you're not going to be rattling through your one teachable or examinable moment every 20 minutes, and therefore you're going to not finish the course. Um, uh, I think my point here is this is a good example of where actually you could make a compromise, you could uh, thin down the substantive part of a GCSE history specification, um, which would benefit the most academically able children because they would be able to spend more time wrestling with the actual substance of history, the, the, the disciplinary and substantive and the way they interact together. And that all, would also be a benefit to the children who find learning difficult because there would be less stuff that they have to remember. I think in the specific example of GCSE specification, certainly in history, I'll stay in my lane. I'm not sure about the other ones, although I suspect. Um, I think that what we're looking at is, is actually a desire for um, assessments and a, and, a, and a misconstrued idea of what rigor really is has resulted in something that's made learning particularly difficult, particularly challenging for those who find it most difficult. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely get that. And, you know, that's a really good explanation of it. Um, I, I guess coincided with that, though, do you think that that, you know, that there has been a, a real drop and, and many sort of um, I guess what I guess what this leads into is the curriculum as a whole. There are people who would very strongly argue that the curriculum has become too focused on the so-called academic subjects and being academic um, mm. and that as a marker of success and away from subjects that are perceived to be of a less academic nature and almost saying they're less less academic. So we need to sort of focus less on them and give them less credence. There are many people who would say that is what has happened. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, see, I come from I come from that from a again from a different angle. I think mm. because for me, the problem with arguing not not to get into the rights and wrongs about what should be on the curriculum, but the problem yeah. with arguing that um, there are some students who are academic and some students who are non-academic, and the students who are non-academic should be able to thrive or would do better in subjects which, are, which aren't regarded as traditionally academic. Does that make sense so far? Is that fair? Yeah. 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 I, I think the problem with that is it still is playing into this meritocratic idea 
that in order to have value, everybody must have these uh, recognisable and instrumentally valuable characteristics. The idea that if someone is not um, uh, able to be really good at maths or at English, well, that's okay because that can be compensated for by them being really good at cookery or really good at sport. I'm speaking very crudely here and people will forgive my lack of nuance, I hope. But I, I think the problem with saying that is it's still speaking and playing the meritocratic game. It's the idea that value has got to be found in some external achievements. And, and, and the problem is, is there are lots of children, of course there are, who are not going to be um, recognisably or instrumentally successful in either of those two fields. Um, and so then the problem then becomes uh, uh, they, they become even more lost and humiliated or frustrated. I think what I prefer is the idea that we should be, of course, I agree with you. I mean, the first thing I should have said is I do agree that, that schools can do much better at recognising a broader range of achievements and characteristics. I do think that's true. But I think we can also do a really, really good job of recognising that, that people's achievements are remarkable because of the different starting points they come from. Um, that actually we can celebrate what might not be an instrumentally recognisable achievement to many people if we pay proper attention to it. Uh, a story I keep coming back to on this, which is something I thought a few, a few, a few years ago, and I found quite, I was going to say quiet, but I won't, I won't mess around, very moving. And it was a tweet that um, a, a mother had sent about, uh, and I, I followed people who have experience with learning disability, and the tweet the mother had sent was about a, a young girl, a teenager who had a learning disability, and she, after weeks and months of work, for the first time had learned, and weeks and months of work with her father, had learned for the first time to um, tie her own shoelaces. And her mother had tweeted this as a success. And people were lovely, because I think generally people are. I think people do mean well. And the tweet had been followed with all of these wonderful, um, wonderful uh, kind of voices of support. And maybe it was my eyes on it. Maybe, maybe I was being oversensitive. But although people were really supportive of it, I couldn't help but detect what I perceived to be an, uh, an air of condescension. A sort of, this is so cute. You know, she's, she's done it. It's really nice that she's been working with her dad. And I was looking at this and I was thinking, well, this isn't cute to me, actually. There's something, something sublime in this, something actually awesome, something that is, is worthy of, of a huge amount of genuine and deep respect. That What this young woman has achieved is something quite astonishing. Um, and actually, I think that we can all get better at looking for those sorts of example of achievement, um, for, for saying that it's the work that you put in, your willingness to devote yourself to this thing. And I think if we did that, the sorts of things you're talking about, we'd naturally get better at, right? You know, like the idea that, yeah, you may not be at the same point as someone else in your class. You may be doing different subjects, but you can still achieve honour and dignity and recognition for your achievements through your work. Um, so, yeah, I think I'd, I'd come in from a slightly different point of view. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the bit I was sort of picturing was this idea that at the minute, the way the curriculum is structured still is very much because you mentioned maths and english earlier mm. in terms of the levels of students coming out of primary school into secondary who maybe don't have the, the the required literacy levels to access the curriculum and so on but beyond maths and english you've obviously it within the sort of subjects and options that students can pick and that dominate their timetables that there the aren't necessarily opportunities maybe for I say, well, I'm sure there are in some schools, absolutely. But as a, as a sort of, you know, your best eight subjects, as it as it would be called, all that mm. sort of stuff. Mm. I'm saying, like, 
you know, mechanics, um, gardening, um, uh, art, art, even uh, drama. You know, there's a lot of subjects that me- that many would argue are still very much overlooked in favour of others, whereas maybe they shouldn't be. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I'm just sort of throwing ideas out there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think there is there is some things that we could look at in terms of our compromises and things around accountability measures, which incentivize things which perhaps yes. aren't always in the best interests of, of children. Although, again, I would also um, definitely voice a note of caution, as I said before, about about not, not considering the unintended consequences of making these big changes. So first of all, in support for what you're saying, yeah, you know, I, I do think that the first of all, the idea of all children studying eight subjects or at least eight subjects is that always right? I'm not sure it would always be right. I think there may be some circumstances in which some children would benefit from doing fewer, just as there are some benefits in which some children do more. However, again, I would want to look at data there, Tom, because I know that there are children who do less than eight. I know that there are lots of schools which are making very sensible decisions um, based on uh, on, on knowing individual children really well. Um, and so actually, you know, I'll be very sensitive about saying they should just not do that in case they might be doing it already. Mm. I do think there are mistakes, not mis- I do things that, that, things that we probably should look at, um, although I'm not sure how seriously people now take the EBAC measure of school performance. I think that practicalities have hit us a bit, haven't they, with the lack of language teachers and things. Um, but I think that that's something that could potentially be quite unhelpful. But at the same time, it's also um, the unintended consequences thing again. You know, like system-wise, as a bet, if we if we said we are going to allow um, children, we're not going to hold schools to account for, and we're not going to incentivize children for choosing more academic subjects. Um, what was that going to look like across the system? Are we going to end up with children in disadvantaged areas choosing subjects which? Which, which which narrow options to a degree they wouldn't if they were born into a more affluent school and again like you well, are then, being... then that idea of i guess you could argue that idea of sort of narrowing option the idea of narrowing options you imagine they started to study plumbing or, or being an electrician at the age of sort of 13 14 onwards or something you could argue that's actually increasing their options I'm not sure I follow. How would it increase options? Because you, you could, because anybody who finishes GCSEs, having done um, maths, science, can go and become an electrician. Yeah. No. Sorry. I, I suppose what I'm or getting at is, I suppose what I'm getting at is more a more practical opportunity to study a vocation. I guess is is where I'm sort of going to with that. It's sort of like going outside and repairing cars. Um, as a subject, which I know people do, post-16 vocation, I get all that, but a more definitive um, sort of path that, that children can take to... Yeah, maybe. I mean, I guess, I guess one of the things that... Um, I guess one of the things that, I, that has, has disappeared, not quite sure the reasons why, since I've been teaching over the last 20 years, is work experience. You know, mm. I, I do remember there was mm. a time when that was a very, very common feature of year 10, and it seemed to last up to a half term sometimes. <laughs> Remember uh, early in my career, part of my time, so I used to be go I had to go out and visit children on work experience. That was lovely, actually. I've forgotten about that. Um, and and yes, you know that that has gone by the way. Maybe that is something that that we that that schools could look at. But again, it's one of those things, isn't it? Where um, uh, I'd need to understand the systemic reasons why that didn't exist in the first place. Also, why it disappeared in the first place, and what would be the benefits, and what would be the the potential risks of bringing that back.
No, that's a good point. Um, Amjad's joined us. Amjad, um, say hi. Um, I'm hello. Gonna... Hello, good evening. I'm going to bring you in in a couple of minutes. I'm just going to finish. Um, I've got a couple more questions for Ben. And then no I'm going to sort of bring you into the conversation. So, Ben, um, I'm interested in the, this passage. I'll read it out for everyone. Um, the results of such diverse cohorts sitting one exam on a specification designed predominantly for the cleverest children is chaos in the lower grades. For candidates Ooh. on the bottom half of the bell curve, the exam becomes a crapshoot. It isn't possible for these children to learn and remember everything, so they and their teachers must make blind bets about what might and might not come up in terminal exams. Students who get lucky find they can do more questions and get higher grades than the unlucky ones who can do fewer. This isn't okay. So my question to you is, how do we change the assessment assessment system um, into something that will be better than what we currently have? Or do we need to? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for GCSE history, I'd just take out as much prescribed substantive concepts in the in, in the um, in the spec. I think that that's pretty much an accepted uh, uh, right. step forward by the by the history community. I mean, the, yeah, so it's, it's just the, lessening the, the content, the, lessening the substantive content. The substantive. I think that if you, I think if you lessen the substantive content, you give more space for the disciplinary content, um, which means that the subject actually becomes more authentic um, to itself. And I think, as I said before. It also means, I mean, like, it also means it would be easier to check because it would be easier to teach children who find learning more difficult about what history is all about. You know, history is exciting when you realise it's about change, right? Or when you realise it's about the consequence. These are the bits where it's thrilling to know these things. If you actually reduce the amount of substantive content they had to wade through in order to get to those points, well, then I think that, um, that those, those would shine and children would find it more rewarding. Perfect. Um, uh, you, you also said discourse around GCSE grades in all subjects constr- um, constructs anything less than a grade four as a fail. This devalues lower grades and leads to an uncomfortable sense that they exist only to prop up and value to the higher ones. Again, I was just going to ask you, what's the answer to that one? <laughs> well, I, I don't know if she's on. Alison um, Honeyboon, who is also, I don't know if people, she's definitely worth following if you're on Twitter. She's one of the wisest people on there. One of the things that she says consistently is stop calling them. I, I, I've made the mistake here, but stop calling grades one to three a fail. I mean, they are not. Yeah. They are a qualification which counts, which will get you into college. You know, maybe not the uh, some courses, but it will get you in. The problem, the damage here was done by the construction of a four as a pass and five as a strong pass, wasn't it? The problem is, is that when you use that language, you implicitly say that every grade below that is is a fail. Uh, I think that we need to stop doing that. I think that one of the, the things that is clearest is, is how can we build... When I was talking before about valuing children for the effort they put in, for coming from different points and working really hard at something, uh, it, it, it's, it's very hard to do that if children feel that they've done all of those things, they've done everything they can do, they've done what their teacher asked, They've worked really hard and they've ended up with something that the world tells them is a fail. So let's just not say it's a fail, eh? Um, let, let's push back on that. Amjad, I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that little bit there. About- this programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. Yeah, so the I one mean, to four thing. 
Yeah, I, I wrote an article. Uh, I was just trying to Google it now, but I can't find it ages ago for the TES that said that um, we need to stop verifying the standards which society deem as good or bad across the board. And in which I essentially argued that a grade one, two, three, or maybe in older language, a grade E, F, or D or whatever were perfectly reasonable and were perfectly acceptable and actually would have been and could have been the best possible outcome for some of our students. So the societal norm of what is a good or a strong or a standard pass, as Ben says now, isn't applicable for every single student. Um, and I think that that kind of is perpetuated with this whole rates of progress business and how mm -hmm. if you start here, you need to finish here and the kind of yeah. levels of progress need to match. But yeah, I, I mean, I wrote about that a long time ago and I stand by that, that we, as a society, we're already stipulating what is the base minimum. And for some of our students, the base minimum is not there. And actually for them, that's their base maximum, yet still they'll be determined or deemed as failures. Because in, in the old days, um, you know, I had kids say to me uh, who, were, who were sort of stuck on, if you like, a U. So like a U or maybe slightly above. And um, they were like, oh, I can, never, I can never get a C anyway. I can mm. never get a C anyway. So what's the point? Like, yeah, I failed anyway. And, yeah. Yeah. No. Well, yeah. I mean, mm. I'm. I'm sort of. And then you try to say to them, look, if you get from a U to a D, then, or, or whatever, then that's that is a remarkable achievement. But Absolutely. our our system tells them that it doesn't really matter. Do you know what I mean? No. Like, there's an yeah, element yeah, of yeah, like, absolutely. if you don't get that certain, and it's the same now. If you don't get this level, it doesn't really matter what you do. You've still failed. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's a system that's uh, existed for such a long time, and it's maybe inadvertently or subconsciously um, reinforced by parents and carers too. So, you know, my dad who can't read or write and my mom who uh, came over from Pakistan, you know, they would have been sold this system of what is good and what is a pass, and therefore that system is exasperated by others saying, no, no, that's okay, you know. If a parent went home and shared with their circle of friends, oh, my child got all twos or all ones, other parents would gasp, right? They would go, oh, okay, they didn't do too well, did they? But if the parent turns around and says, no, no, I'm over the moon, they've done exceptionally well, they'd look at them as if they're mad. And that's kind of been conditioned into society, so to speak. Yeah, Ben, I, I wondered just to bring you back in that, you know, the, I don't know if this phrase still exists, but it used to be very prominent of every child matters. Um, surely that's more important than it ever was. Yeah, I, I think the problem with any statement like every child matters or any statement is it's what we do with that statement that counts, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the words are cheap. It's very easy to say we believe in inclusion or we believe every child matters or no child left yeah. behind. What does that look like in practice? Um, yeah. And that's what, and that's what I meant before about saying about the thing about seeing things from a system level change and, and how do you go about making that change without making things even worse? I realize it's Amjad's time, but I'll leave you with just one thing here, which <laughs> keeps circling around. It's been really helpful to me. But when I was thinking about system change, um, uh, somebody introduced me to the idea of Chesterton's fence. 
And Chesterton's fence um, was a, a heuristic of thinking. And uh, Chesterton was a civil servant um, back 40 or 50 years ago. And he said, the modern and young, naive sort of reformer sees a fence in a field and says, I see no purpose in this fence. Let us remove it. And he said, I would always reply to that reformer, I will certainly not let you refer, re remove it unless you can tell me what the purpose of the fence is. Uh, what you must go away and do is find out what that fence was built for and what it's doing. After you can come and tell me that, well, then I may, after consideration, allow you to destroy it. And it's this idea that, that it, it's, it's, it, it, to make these big system changes, you have to think about the reasons why things in the system exist already. And that's the only way to kind of get to a, a, a change which will help all children and not make things worse without you meaning to. Brilliant. Ben, thanks so much for your time. Um, thanks for coming on. No worries, no worries. I'll probably stay on for a bit. It'd be interesting to hear oh, what Amjad well, has to say. Well, good to hear, good, and good to hear you, Amjad. If and you can, you, that you. would be if you can, that would be fantastic. And then obviously feel free to sort of drop in at any point with it with any sort yeah, of yeah, thoughts yeah. or comments. Um Amjad, do you want to introduce yourself just quickly for me? Um just give people an outline of your current role and what you do. Sure. Um, so my name is Amjad Ali. I'm uh, a teacher, a leader. Um, I work four days a week in a secondary school. I'm currently uh, an English and business studies teacher. And the reason why I say currently with the state of play in education at the moment, senior leaders have to pick up where there are gaps. Um, and I've been teaching for 19 years now. I've been teaching for 19 years um, and um, one day a week, I provide training and CPD around the country um, with the kind of premise of I talk about the things that I do and SEND is my specialism, if I can call it. I, I would never call myself an expert, but I believe I may have some expertise maybe in this area. I w wanted to, thank you for that. I wanted to ask you, Amjad, to start off with. Um, and you know there's been i suppose i want to ask you a broader question a very open question to start mm -hmm. with is what are the major challenges for for students for send learners within our current education system what are the biggest challenges um so just free flowing just off the top of my head without really giving it kind of deeper thought yeah I'd say in no kind of specific order, um, teacher knowledge of the variety and vastness of SEND need. Um, this phrase, we are all teachers of SEND, we are all literacy teachers, we're all numeracy teachers, we're all this teacher, we're all that teacher. The reality is that the knowledge gap in teachers and for teaching for SEND is vast. Um, that's definitely a barrier. Um, one of the other significant barriers which um, you won't be surprised about is the chronic lack of funding and the chronic lack of additional resources and facilities and services that is creating a bottleneck in the schooling system. Um, and I'd say the other barrier is, I don't know, um, I'm trying to say it in a non-controversial way. I think the resentment to this kind of notion of differentiation, which has now morphed into the word adaptation. Um, I think the kind of worry that I can't possibly do this, which kind of kind of circles back to point number one, I guess. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, ben actually in his blog um, sort of wrote down some of the things that people, people um, 
say, you know, you put them in quotes. So there's there's lot there, there's loads of so uh, people say things like there's loads of funding for children with send. Um, children with send get get loads of extra help. Um, Daisy in Maya's class has a one to one TA to help her. Uh, the teacher always gives help to the kids with the EHCPs first. Um, and uh, and Ben has said it isn't silly to think children with send get more help than those without. And I think, and I don't, and Ben's still here, so he can correct me if I'm wrong here, is that um, we shouldn't, we should, uh, we shouldn't, we should accept that people within the education system are different. And Ben, I'll let you explain that. You're, you're going to do it better than I ever could. Yeah, I mean, I think the, in a sense, I think the whole point of the blog, I'm, uh, it was that um, the entire education system is really set up to make its compromises in favour of those who find learning easier. The, 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 the more you come in with, the more you are going to come out with it. And so really, while it might look like that all of the systems are to actually support students who find learning harder, all they are is really, uh, is really lifeboats at very best for children in a system which is um, often a hostile environment to them. Thank you for that. I, Amjad, I was going to ask you on the back of that, if you imagine, we let, let's imagine, let's theoretically say there isn't any more money. So let's say I said to you mm -hmm. now, there isn't any more money. So whatever it's not, money It's not that is... hard to imagine that. I, I, I'm there with you on that one. <laughs> yeah, but, okay. Yeah. So but imagine I'm government now and mm -hmm. I'm saying to you, on a I'm not lying, and I'm mm -hmm. genuinely saying there isn't any more money, mm -hmm. but, but send diagnosis and needs have gone up massively in the last 20 years which, mm -hmm. which is true they have whether there's not any more any more funding for it is another question altogether mm -hmm. but i'm but that's that's the challenge mm -hmm. so if i was to say to you without spending any more money mm -hmm. is there anything that can happen now in your opinion that can make things better for all students within the system um, I guess it w if we circle back to the barriers um, and thinking about Ben's excellent Chesterton fence theory, we won't take down the fence unless we know what it's for. So if this kind of principle applies, what are we trying to do with education? If education is to create a better process and a better next step and a better life journey for a young person, then I guess one of the simplest things that we can do would be to get rid of the accountability measures that state a school cannot be X, Y, Z unless they reel out X, Y, Z. So mm. if our sole job was to get our students to their next process or their next stage or their next element of their life, then let schools do that. And until we get rid of, as Ben said, until we get rid of the um, items that aren't substantive and aren't, really procedurally strengthening the knowledge of young people then you know we're in trouble so if we if we didn't if we had money as a barrier and we can have free form for other areas kind of just spoiling i would say allow schools to determine what should and shouldn't be taught but that risks the problem of if there isn't a real grounding or a real knowledge of what send and inclusion actually entails you you risk people saying oh well we'll give them hairdressing courses or we'll put them on motor vehicle mechanics and we'll do all of those things so you know if we can upskill and create world champions within each school 
send people around to be able to, you know, teach right from the chalk face. And I'm not talking about people that haven't stepped foot in a classroom for years. Mm. I'm talking about people that are doing this with young people, people that are living and breathing this experience to really determine what would be best. Because as a phrase goes, you know, once you taught one child with autism, that's it. You've taught one child with autism. So, you know, no one can really claim to know everybody, but it's that idea of, are we using enough people with actual neurodivergent experiences themselves? You know, there's very few, if any, trainers out there that are actually neurodivergent themselves. So it's upskilling and also reducing the... And the thing is, people will say to me, Amja, what shackles are you talking about? Because certain organizations don't even look at data. They don't even look at progress. But come on, you know, we need to think about what are we actually expecting from that school? When you've got a school that's churning out 98% nines to six and then the school down the road isn't, who's going to be labelled as the best school? So mm. it's that thinking of what that process looks like, if that makes any sense. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Dan, I don't know whether you've got any comments on what I just, just said. Don't worry if you haven't. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll go on, Van. Uh, well, no, not, not much. I mean, to say, I think that one thing that schools practically could do uh, and the system could practically do is, is look at a wider range of success measures. It's not to say that um, academic results aren't an indicator of a good school. They absolutely are. It's important that we, that we see that. But we can value other things too, right? So um, uh, one thing I'd like to see is, 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 is looking at, where, uh, uh, who teaches the children who find learning most difficult. What's the expertise and all that are based there? Um, the, where, where are the children who found learning hardest? Where did they go to? Where were those destinations? And were as much thought and care put into thinking about those as the children who found learning easiest? When we look at celebrating in schools about who's been successful, of course, it's not wrong to celebrate the children who get the very best academic results. That's fine. But we are also are we also celebrating things that are accessible to all children? Are we uh, and are we doing that in a way that's meaningful and respectful without condescension and without patronising? I mean, what, what what's interesting is you could have a whole cohort of students who are travelling on a trajectory to get in old scores like a U or an undisqualified grade or whatever. And in 20 years' time, those same students who did not achieve above a four or above an old C grade or whatever um, say things like, oh, do you remember when Mr Newmark took us to... Uh, this museum and we did all of this and do you remember when mr newmark uh gave us this particular experience and they they started to love history they started to love history and then in 20 years time their kids they pass that on to their kids and their kids start to love history and this could apply to any different subject across the curriculum that has value now i'm not saying you can necessarily measure it and certainly you can't measure it easily. But currently, that doesn't really get any, in my opinion, it doesn't really get any sway because you could have a teacher teaching a so-called, you know, a lower ability set or whatever, and they get those students, it sort of ties into what I was saying earlier, but they give those students an incredible experience, a memorable experience that lasts for a lifetime. But they always, that it's almost like, inspires them in some sub level it's nothing to do with the academic qualification nothing to do with the test at the end but on some level it inspires them to love that subject and then that later on in life can transfer into something very tangible 
Sorry, I'm on a massive spiel here. I don't know whether either of you have a comment on that. <laughs> I mean, I think the key thing about that is um, it's easy to fall into the trap that the only role for those students with highest level needs would be to create a love and interest in the subject. And I think to echo what Ben has said, you know, academic achievement is just as vital and is just as important as non-academic achievement, whatever that means. You know, even that phrase is, you know, makes me wince when we think about it. If you if you think about the binary opposite of academic and non-academic, be it on such a widely uh, differentiated scale. Um, but I think, yeah, I hear what you're saying theoretically, you know, but maybe to play devil's advocate, isn't that a job of all schools to do that? to get their students to love their subject and get their students to love what they're doing and um, create a richness of uh, knowledge so that they can... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was just making this the point within the accountability system. If the, if that student didn't achieve a, a certain grade, then the, then really the teacher has failed and the student has failed. And, you know, that's within our... Edu- so within our system, that's, that's what it appears to be on paper. That's the point I was making. Not that... Mm-hmm. Not that we wouldn't want the student to. I think it's. I think it's. uh, Yeah, I think society mirrors the kind of standards that schools put out, right? So, if the basic expectation is that a student should be getting a four or a strong four, uh, a standard four or a strong five as as a good pass, then you know uh, opportunities and um, next steps mirror those societal norms, and I guess. You know, if you look into the stats of what percentage of students with additional needs are in full time employment, we've got to look at the wider kind of net of where are they meant to go? What are what are the jobs that are out there for them? So we need to broaden it past schools in the sense of if I say to a student, if you get a two, you get onto your college course to complete this. And then there are jobs and opportunities available for you in this field. They need to exist but at the moment, there's a deficit and a shortfall in that area too. And therefore, the push towards the fours and the fives and then those standard routes into those standard employments is what lots of schools are pushing towards. Yeah, Ben, I don't know whether you have any other comments on that and my my rant, my philosophical rant. Possibly not. Um, I, I want to read a little bit, Anjad, about... Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about mm-hmm. TAs and mm-hmm. teaching assistants. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a bit actually in Ben's blog where he says, take t- teaching assistants assigned to individual children. For many familiar with the SEND world, this is a gold standard provision. A one-to-one helper whose job is to act as a bridge between the rest of the class and a student who wouldn't be able to be part of the lesson at all if it weren't for them, a sort of lesson interpreter. In the inclusion illusion... Rob Webster finds this is often not the case. He argues one-to-one TA support can often be a feature of an exclusionary system that places a child in a class without being of the class. The point is not to include the child, but to contain them so more able children aren't impacted by the challenges the struggling child faces. Webster makes it very clear this is not the fault of TAs, who he found often concerned about their lack of training and confidence, um, and then he goes on, our mainstream professional hierarchy is upside down with the least trained, lowest paid, least secure mm-hmm. and lowest status, given responsibility for educating the children for which learning is the hardest. 
with little formal appreciation, guidance or help. Now, Ben, I have to stress, does go on and say TAs are amazing and mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. he, he's not therefore pointing yeah, out sure, of course. Yeah. yeah, he's just talking about the way the system's structured, I guess. Mm-hmm. So do you have any thoughts on that? And, and in terms of like the role of a TA and the current role of a TA within the system? I mean, I don't want to sound like a politician and say, firstly, can I start by saying we thank like, all the TAs out there for everything they do, and it's absolutely phenomenal. I spent uh, just under a year working as a teaching assistant in various young offender institutes and prisons before I started teaching, so I know the role of a TA very, very well. Um, however, absolutely uh, what Webster and Mr. Newmark is saying is accurate and the current picture, which is placing what I would refer to as uh, essentially a plaster on a broken system where the TAs are fixing and supporting where there are significant gaps and there are significant shortfalls in provision. Um, and yeah, you're right. And uh, and going back to what Ben said earlier as well, as in who are the teachers teaching the classes and who are the TAs with those classes? And, you know, the amount of teachers that will simply say, I cannot function without my TA. Um, and I'm not talking explicitly about a primary school system because that is a different system with the TA structure. If we look at secondary school systems in which is my experience. So, for example, uh, Tom, if you look at who are the people in your schools that will be able to teach early reading skills to a student that has joined in year seven, chronological age of 11 and a half, but reading age of about six or seven. Right. Mm. Who would be the people that would be able to teach those reading skills? Now, if you're lucky you'll have a teacher or a qualified teacher or a team of people aimed at improving the reading skills of said people. However, the majority of secondary schools, I would argue there would be, and this is again, no denigration or offense, um, the least qualified and least well-paid people doing arguably the most difficult and most necessary Mm -hmm. job, which is to upskill these young people to get their reading age to a capacity for them to be able to access a mainstream curriculum. So, yeah, the, the fallacy of a TA model is is extreme. And, you know, when you've got lesson interpreter, I like that phrase, and I might steal that, Ben. Um, that lesson interpreter oh, idea. Oh, hang on, copyrighted. I'm just um, copyrighted. Yeah, it's in his blog. TM, yeah. Um, that lesson interpreter idea is, is fascinating because the amount of times that, for example, I've delivered TA training and the TAs literally overwhelmingly say, is this going to go to the teachers too? And it's that kind of idea of, Am I meant to be doing this or is this the teacher? Um, and that overlap is is vast and broad, but um, that that kind of, I mean, that kind of dissects us into the next angle, which is how do we upskill those people? You know, what are the processes for bringing those people onto, uh, into our classrooms? Um, who is the one responsible for getting them to the process where we can really benefit from them? Because it, it irks me when people say, oh, you know, there's me and the TA and we'll both provide the same practical resource in the classroom, right? Yet I'm paid, what, 60, 70% more than you? Should I be doing the exact same? And, you know, I'm not saying it's all about money, but it's about equity of opportunity there, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I I found that passage really, really interesting. And, you know, just just in case people... And by the way, thanks everybody for for listening in. I hope you're enjoying the, the show. Obviously, you're listening to Teachers Talk Radio. This will be available as a podcast um, after this on the website and on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your your podcasts um, via Teachers Talk Radio. But so if you've missed any of it and want to listen back, that's where it'll be. And it'll also sit on Twitter on this exact same link 
Um, so if you happen to have a Twitter account, you can just listen to it there. Thank you if you if you're listening to this as a podcast. Um, thank you for sharing this discussion with us, which is a very interesting and important one. Um, yeah, I mean, I just found that bit really, really interesting um, because um, it, uh, just to read it again, just this little bit again um, for people who maybe have just joined us. The bit that says, um, for many familiar with the same world, the TA is a gold standard provision, a one-to-one helper whose job is to act as a bridge between the rest of the class and a student who wouldn't be able to be part of the lesson at all if it weren't for them, a sort of lesson interpreter. In the inclusion illusion, Rob West finds this is often not the case. He argues one-to-one TA support can be a feature of an exclusionary system that places a child in the class without being part, being of the class. The point is not to include the child, but to contain them. So more able children aren't impacted by the challenges the struggling child faces. I guess my next question was like, how do you mitigate against that then? How do you, how do you <clears throat> not make that the case? And maybe Ben, I don't know if Ben's still there, but he can come in on this as well if he is. But Amjad, how do you, yeah. how do you I mean, stop that from happening? So for example, uh, if anybody knows me, they'd know that I love giving high impact, low effort strategies. So here's one for everybody that's listening. Um, use your TA as a triage, not as the doctor, metaphorically. So um, a, a TA would circulate the room and would go around and speak to students and find out if there's an issue or whether they're not quite understanding something. If they could deal with that issue there and then, like a nurse would do in an A&E, for example, they would just repair the situation and the student would be on their way. If the TA couldn't deal with that situation there and then, triage it to the doctor or the teacher. So, hey, Mr. Ali, um, so-and-so is really struggling here with accessing this part of the lesson. Would you mind explaining it? Rather than what happens predominantly in a huge number of classes, which would be, oh, so-and-so doesn't understand, miss, can you go help them? And that's not what we need to be doing. Let's flip the system. And that would be a quick way of turning that tide. If you get a, and obviously I like thinking of rebuttals, if you get a teacher that turns around and say, oh, but they don't work with me, the TA should turn around and say, but they didn't work with me too until I built up that relationship. Or they didn't understand me either before I got to know them and understood how they work. So I think, you know, that what I said right at the start, one of the problems, we're not too sure how to work with SEND. We need to overcome Mm. that to then overcome this model of teaching assistant support. Yeah. Ben, I, I don't know whether you have anything to add on that, how to mitigate against what you describe in the blog. Well, yeah, I've got some ideas on actually, and I hope they're practical. I mean, wh- one of the things is that um, it, I think it's a myth uh, to say that um, TAs are, uh, are, are not motivated and not able to really well support children with, uh, who find learning tougher. Um, the TAs I've known are some of the most committed and some of the most professional and hardworking people that I've come across. And actually what they're asking for when you speak them is training and support on how to better help these children that nobody else in the system cares more about. These are the people who care about these children more than anyone because they work with them one-on-one. And I know for a fact that from my own personal experience, from my own personal life, but also from working in schools, that often these um, teaching assistants are, are Googling and trying to learn and trying to work out and trying how to find to, to support these children better. And they're doing this all on their own because there is no accepted way that this happens. It's not organized. 
So one of the ways we could do is work from the bottom. Let's 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 give the TAs what they're asking for, which is expertise, knowledge, support, and recognition of how important that work is. I think this is one of those things where um, we might say that you know my chest and fence analogy, but we might say, yeah, you know, it'd be best, it'd be great if they earned more than anybody else did. They should really, right? You know, the people who work with children who find learning hardest should be the the highest degrees of expertise we have in that system. But I think it's going to be hard to get there overnight. So in the meantime, let's do what we can. And let's make it easy for these people to access training, support and help. And I think if we did that, that would be a really good system-wide bet for the children who do find school tough. Um, Amjad, I, I also want to talk to you, and this is again um, something that Ben also brought up, um, but it really made me think. Because um, Ben said... Uh, asked where are the charities to help poor children who aren't doing well in school uh, wouldn't it be more equitable if we focused on these rather than those who are who have comparatively more advantage already so i think one of the examples ben gave is like a charity that helps already high achieving uh students who are poor rather than the students who struggle with learning that are poor does that make sense yeah of course yeah <clears throat> i mean the I thought about that for a little while as well. A lot of, after watching the, um, well, I really enjoyed the coronation concert yesterday, the amount of trusts yes. that were referenced, um, you know, how many of them were specifically targeting students, like Ben said, that are really struggling with learning as opposed to the ones mm. that are, uh, if economically it's exist, disadvantaged. Yeah, or naturally gifted, but economically disadvantaged kind of thing. You know, the ones yeah. that just need that kind of leg up as opposed to the kind of ones that need two feet up. Um, and yeah, that, that that is a deficit. That is a shortfall. There is definitely ones out there, but they're just not as prominent and they're just not as well-funded and they're just not as advertised for that reason. Um, and it's that idea of how do we kind of work through with those. And then I guess what might then happen is people then argue or try to filter in the funding and the money for where there are deficits for, for example, mental health or um, those areas as opposed to the academic support. And we need all of them. Um, and that's where the chronic underfunding is really making a massive hit on people's lives. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, again, th there will be, there will be, so there are schools out there with sort of really um how oh, right i need to try and put this in the right in the best possible way there are schools out there that achieve really really good in inverted commas results so uh, mm -hmm. on academic lead tables and sort of like um that side of things they do they do really well um and i know one of my guests a few weeks ago was sort of highlighting those schools and saying those schools don't sort of I, th I think i think his um thing was they don't they don't uh label i think he used the words label um i can't remember the specific words he, he used but they don't focus as much on individual sort of um uh send provision and rather just sort of like uh teach the way they teach and teach really well and then they get really really good results Mm -hmm. um, and they, they do really, really well in the performance and the lead tables for that reason. And students achieve 
within the within the within exactly what we're talking about within the current system within the academic subjects and there are a range of students you know it's these are comprehensive schools um what would you i, I mean i don't really know what my question is i think i know i think i know what you're trying to say um help me uh, Angela, help. yeah i think i think <laughs> what you're essentially saying is isn't there a, a call that we just make it really really efficient and effective pedagogy and practice and then all of our students will be able to benefit from those kind yeah of ways of and, being and sort of, of like collective behavior and yeah of course you know, and focusing the thing is, on that all yeah. that sort of stuff I think I think we have to primarily and you know very very consciously be clear that despite any kind of statement like I use the phrase needed for some but benefit all any of those kind of phrases whatever we might think or say there will always be the necessity for bespoke and individual association for students that are either physically disabled or neurologically different so you know the qualities act um the disability discrimination process the send code of practice all states that that individuality of performance and process and resource and support is needed. However, yes, generally, if we're going to be very, very simplistic with it, if we can put in place, you know, really sound, high quality teaching and learning practices, then yeah, they will benefit all students. So for example, if you had a dyslexia friendly classroom, Mm. Um, and you used the kind of British Dyslexia Association's readability report and designed your visual depictions of information using their processes, that won't hinder anybody and that will just benefit everyone, right? So there are processes like that that will absolutely support the, the kind of need and necessity of what we're doing. However, there will still be some students that say, for example, will need a scribe or will need a reader. Um, and so those students will still need a bespoke set of support. But that general assumption that we can work and support students across the board with really high quality teaching. Yeah, that rings true. I mean, I'm a PP leader. I've been a PP lead in various schools and that same process has applied to pupil premium students, right? Yet, if only if it was that simple, you know, we would have, we fixed it, haven't we? We've just thought yeah. what's, what, what it is to do and we should all do it. And I wonder why so many schools haven't tried doing that then or why just they're not doing it, if that makes sense. You know, theoretically, it's so simple. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Um, it, 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 I, there's so much in this conversation that, like, it, yeah, it's, there's unbelievable amounts of stuff to sort of explore. I mean, literally, you could spend 24 hours talking about it all. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to sort of, like, finish off. And if, if Ben is still there, he can also come in on this. But, like, we talk about, like, teachers coming into the profession if there was something that you think it would be beneficial for a new teacher to really deeply know that they aren't either necessarily taught or they aren't, um, it isn't necessarily focused on um, during that phase, like what, what, what would that be to make the system better? I'm I'm happy to answer. Happy yeah, to go on. To go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Go. I mean, uh, what would we? What would I really want teachers to know that were coming into the profession? Um, yeah, I'd that they that to... they don't necessarily know, or or at the very least, is less known. If you know what I mean. Okay, to just keep it very simplistic, <clears throat> and this, lots of primary school teachers will be saying, "Oh, well, we kind of do this." Um, 
would be for every single new teacher joining the profession to know how to teach reading, how to get a student that cannot read, that cannot access any written material to read and decode. That would be my primary skill that I'd love every teacher in the UK to jump into the profession with. Obviously, if we want to expand that, I'd love everyone to suddenly wake up overnight and be able to do that. And once we can get that process in, that reading, writing, that vocabulary development, that kind of accessibility of those different um, stages of um, reading and decoding, that will be my wish kind of come true. And just as a um, side note, just that under that unlearning of those neuro myths that we have in education would be phenomenal too. Yeah, wow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, ben, I, if you're still there, then then do you have a you know a final thought on this of something that you would like new teachers to know that is lesser known across the profession? Well, first comes- of all. Yeah, I mean, there is. I mean, first of all, I think that Amjad's suggestion is a cracking start, actually. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's lots and lots of systemic things that might make that an obstacle, yeah. make that difficult, but anything that is really worthwhile always has lots of um, systemic problems and obstacles. That's why we haven't done it already, right? But I think that that's a really good place to start. I think that's good. You know, I, I think that would help as well. Now, what I particularly yeah. like about what Amjad has said there is that he's censored the issue on a learning need rather than identification. And that's brilliant. Yeah. You know, the idea here is that that what we're doing is we're looking at a specific thing that will benefit lots and lots and lots of children, which kind of swerves the mess of the send identification problem, which is we we don't know who the children we send are. So that, that, that's the sort of thing, the idea I really want to hear. Um, I'll just leave on that, really. Thanks for that, Anjad. I'll think about that. Pleasure. And, and, and the last point that I'd make, really, is that it's just so... I think that the main thing for me is it's just so heartening to to hear people having these conversations, ideas like Amjad's there, which are about mainstreaming this issue, not seeing it as a niche issue that belongs to your special educational needs department or your SENCO, Mm -hmm. but something that is relevant and important to all our work. And I think that the more we talk about this in the terms that we are, the better we have, uh, the better chance we have of really changing things for children and making schools genuinely places that work for all children and not just a few. Thanks, Ben. Um, Amjad, I don't know whether, apart from that, maybe there's something else you want to throw in there, apart from the, the sort of um, what you said, which was which was great. Is there anything else you, you would throw in there? I mean, I would just throw in some reflective questions for any of the listeners that are listening yeah. live or will catch up, um, I'm sure, would be who is in charge of sending your school? Um, who's responsible for sending your school? Um who are the students that you think will pass? Who are the students that you think will fail? And if you've got answers to all of these questions, then really think hard about who and what you've answered those questions with. Because the reality is we're all responsible for the students would send. We should never be writing any students off as students that are going to fail. And the students that we think are going to pass, were you going to have any real influence on their passing anyhow? Um, and what I want us to really think deep about is that once SEND becomes an AHT or a DHT responsibility and becomes a silo in a school or an island of kind of protection, that's when we kind of really struggle. Um, And if you notice what's happened with, say, for example, EAL provision over the years, how the kind of governmental push towards it has reduced the kind of leadership, the TLR association, the 
facilitation within job specifications has just windled away. And until we make those kind of processes whole school and systemic, as Ben kept saying, it's going to really keep on hitting us. But yeah, we seem to be circling back on things. I remember when the Senko, the practice come in, I just was starting to train as a Senko then, 2014, and then revised in 2015. We're coming up to nearly you know, 10 years of that send code of practice. And there was a green paper and a white paper and there was consultation and who knows what's happening kind of, you know, with this process now, whether they're going to wait for if there's a new government coming in play. But continuing those conversations is absolutely vital, I think. I'd just like to say a huge thanks, um, Anjad and Ben, for for joining us on Teachers Talk Radio tonight. It's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. So thank you ever so much for giving up your Pleasure. time for that. Um, the, the, as we as I've already said, this will be available as a podcast to listen back to um, and check out the description. If you've missed anything that we've mentioned, we will include it in there on there. Um, a, a quick shout coming up in three minutes time. Um, Finola Jackson uh, is on TTR with um, Amy Tinkler, who's president elect of the Charter College of Teaching, uh, talking about small but mighty how small rural schools punch above their weight. Sounds like a really interesting topic. And that's starting in a couple of minutes' time. Uh, you can listen to that on the TT Radio website and then just click Listen Live if you uh, if you fancy sort of listening and, and getting involved in that conversation. Uh, this has been great. And thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, uh, we'll be back uh, in two minutes' time uh, over on TTR. And uh, take care. Have a good evening and good luck for tomorrow. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.